Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's great to be with you this morning. We're carrying on our series and look at life intention. So last week, we looked at God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And that was tense, wasn't it? How can God be sovereign and yet we're still responsible? And so we're carrying on this this topic, this series, as we look at different questions. And so this week, we're coming to the topic of wrath and mercy. Does God really love me or is he angry with me? Or maybe I, I could put it another way. How can God be a loving God and wrathful? Or how can a kind and compassionate God send people to hell? Or how does Jesus say things like, love your enemies, and yet he comes with a sword and judgment later on in the Bible? It just doesn't seem to marry up, does it? And so this morning we're going to look at that topic, how can God be wrathful and merciful? And brothers and sisters, there is work to do this morning. So please can I encourage you to stir your hearts. It's hard, isn't it? You're probably on a a screen in your living room. There's probably things going on around you. But can I encourage you to engage with what's happening? Maybe to put your phone down. Maybe to, to pray to God to stir in your own heart and speak to you this morning. So let's have a look at some amazing truths in God's Word today. As we get later on in the sermon, there's some profound truths that I hope stir and change your hearts. You know, back in 2009, my father died. I was the one actually to find him, and it was a horrific day. But I think the worst thing about that day, and and still now, is the thought of where is my dad? He wasn't a Christian. Did God send him to hell? Is that where he is right now as I speak to you? It's tense, isn't it? It creates tension for me. It creates tension for for you, I'm sure. But tension isn't always a bad thing. Although Kate will disagree with me. We watched that programme, First Dates, on Channel 4. I don't know if you've seen it, but these couples come on a, a blind date... And Kate hates that beginning bit when they first meet because it's really tense. But actually in those moments, things are created. It's where change can happen. And so, sadly, we operate in the world where we say it can only be this or that. Either this is true or that is true. But actually, often the Bible says that we live in both this and that. It's not either or, it's, it's both and And so that's what we're going to see today. But the danger is that we slip from from one side to the other. We we fall on one end or the other end. So what we're going to do this morning is look at God's wrath then. And say, is God right to be angry? What is wrath? And what is it you think of when I, I mention that word? Maybe you're thinking I'm mentioning it wrong. You might say it differently. But what do you think of when I say the word wrath? Maybe you think of an angry father. Maybe your dad, as you grew up, was an angry man. Or, or maybe you think of a boss at work who's dominating and bullish. Or maybe, sadly, you think of a husband that's abused you. Or maybe it's simply just the person that you cut up on the road the other day in that red, angry face. Well, can I say at the outset, that's not the type of anger we're talking about when it comes to God. 
This is a righteous and just and measured anger, not an impulsive, emotional kind of anger. And so that is often our experience, though, isn't it, of wrath and anger. It's, it's coming from sinners, and indeed we deliver it out as sinners, so it's marred and we misunderstand often what true righteous anger is. So the dictionary actually says this is what wrath is. Strong, stern or fierce anger. Deeply resentful indignation. And that's coming close, but it's not close enough. So the Bible dictionary has a whole paragraph on God's wrath, but the first sentence I think is really helpful for us this morning. And it says this, The permanent attitude of the holy and just God when confronted by sin and evil is designated wrath. Let me say that again. The permanent attitude of the holy and just God when confronted by sin and evil is designated wrath. The permanent. So God is permanently angry at sin. Permanently opposed to any evil. Does that make you feel tense? Me saying that God is permanently angry? It does me. But I sometimes think we've kind of sentimentalised God, haven't we? We've turned God into this nice fluffy character, this bearded man in the sky that just wants to hug everyone and loves everyone. He couldn't possibly be wrathful. Indeed, there's some churches that preach and proclaim that as truth. But that's not what we see as the God of the Bible. Our view of anger is so tainted, so tainted by sin that we misunderstand. Anger can be a good thing. Think of a husband and his wife. Think of someone attacking his wife and and the husband just sits in his chair and says, oh, well, I love everyone. I'm just going to let them crack on. That would be evil, wouldn't it? It'd be wrong. And so that husband's love causes him to act. It's out of love. And the same could be true with a father and and a child. Think of Henry, my child. If someone was to attack Henry, you would see my wrath. I would become angry. And that would be based on my love. So you see, anger in certain situations is right even for sinful human beings. And notice as well that the anger increases the greater the emotional connection. I don't know how many of you got angry at the cockroach that was trod on last week. I don't imagine anybody really cared. Maybe one or two of you. But that should encourage us that God's anger is red hot because he cares, because he loves, because he loves his creation, because he loves you and me, he will act when he's confronted with sin. So there is wrath from God, and we see that in the past through the Old Testament. We see that in the present, in our experience of this broken world, and we see that in the future. And that's where we're going to go now. We're going to have a look at the, the past. Where do we see God's wrath? Well, we have to go back to the beginning of Scripture, don't we? To the beginning of the Bible, where Adam and Eve were were told, you can live in this garden, you can have me in this perfect relationship, you can go anywhere you like, but please don't go to that tree. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. And what did Adam and Eve do? They disobeyed. They went their own way. They turned away from God and said, no, we want to rule this world. We want to live the way we want to live. And Genesis 3 says there is a consequence, there is a a punishment, a judgment upon that sin. 
And so that entered the world. This judgment of Adam and Eve and humanity entered the world. Adam was cursed in his work. Eve was cursed in her childbirth. And so we see that brokenness. And we see it all the way through the Old Testament. I could go to so many different passages to tell you, but as God uh, had his people Israel, his chosen people, he promised Abraham, you will have a nation, and that nation was Israel, his people, his chosen people. And he said, if you follow my ways, I will bless you, I will look after you, but if you disobey me and, and walk away from me, there will be consequences. And Deuteronomy is, is filled with those blessings and those curses. And we know the story, don't we? God's people wandered away from him. And so God's anger burned at that sin, at that disobedience, because he loved them and he had to do something about it. But let's turn in our Bibles this morning to one particular passage. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, down to verse 21. Let me read some of this to you. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. His people had drunk the punishment from God. God had used other people to come in and attack Israel. You who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. God's wrath and punishment caused his people to stagger under the weight of it. It's shocking, isn't it? This, this verse is shocking. It goes on. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. None of Israel's people stood up. None of Israel's people did the right thing. There was no one there to help. Verse 19, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Do you see that? God is prepared to rebuke his people. God is prepared to bring wrath on sin. It's staggering, isn't it? It's humbling. Verse 21, Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. I don't know about you, but as I read verses like that, I am stirred, I am struck, I am humbled. And this is the kind of wrath we see from God. And it's uncomfortable. It's, it's things that we don't often talk about. In fact, we, we don't see many of these verses on people's fridges, do we? We don't see these splattered around on posters. We gloss over it. We, we try to hide this bit. And I think that's a grave mistake. Because this is God's word and we need to hear this. So what about the present then? If you've got your Bible still with you, please, will you turn to the book of Romans? So we're going to go to Romans chapter 1 and we begin to see more of God's outworking of his present wrath into this world. What does that look like? So chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
So the wrath of God is being revealed. We're, we're able to see something now, visibly in the world, of God's wrath. And humanity knows that and we try to suppress it. And what we're talking about here is the suffering and the brokenness of the world around us. That is a measure of, of God's wrath. That is why the world is, is broken, because of humanity's sin that brought this judgment onto the world. And so that's why we see this brokenness. It goes on, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Mankind is without excuse. We know there's a God and we see this brokenness. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the loss of their hearts. God's protection is removed. His, his mercy is removed to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God is revealing his wrath. It's, it's like that passage there is telling us, isn't it? It's like, wake up. Wake up to what God is doing. Wake up to the world. See this world. See the brokenness and cry out, why? I love that quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So some of you might be listening this morning and thinking, well, George, are you saying coronavirus and, and what we're seeing around us, that's, that's God's judgment for a particular sin? I, I don't know. I don't know if it's for a particular sin, but what I do know is what the Bible says, that there's brokenness in this world as a result of humanity's sin. And so, yes, the coronavirus is a display of God's wrath in that sense. And so it should waken us and stir us. Verse 25 tells us we worship the creation instead of the creator. This is the blasphemy that we commit. This is the thing that we do. We, we turn away from the fountain of living water and we turn to broken systems. How foolish and darkened our hearts are. And God must do something about that. He can't turn a blind eye. Imagine a wife who is, who is raped and the husband just stands by. And I'm sorry to use graphic language, but I think we need to be shocked because this is shocking and it's designed to be shocking to waken us up, to stir our hearts. We drink the poison of sin. And I, for one, if I saw someone give Henry a, a bottle of poison, I would violently take it from his hands, violently attack the perpetrator and keep him away. And so God violently attacks sin. This is a holy father. I'm an unholy father. Think of the holy father that does always what is right. He must do something. Sin is a horrific disease. More horrific than coronavirus. More horrific than Ebola. More horrific than anything we see in our world. And imagine if someone had the cure for COVID right now. 
And they said, well, I'm, I'm not going to give it to you. This is part of the cure that God gives us for sin. His righteous judgment upon it. It helps us. And this word wrath that we see in the book of Romans, that uh, verse 18, for the wrath of God, could be translated as opposition. So you could read that verse, for the opposition of God is revealed from heaven. God is opposed. It's like a a brick wall when it comes to sin. There's no way he is going to allow sin to continue. So let me do this imagination with you. Just imagine for a moment, wherever you're sat in your living rooms or wherever you are, imagine with me now all your sins added up and placed into a cup. Have to be a big cup, wouldn't it? But every evil thought, every lustful look, every blatant sin, every time you could have acted but you stepped back, every wrong word, every violent action, every time you worshipped the creation, money, approval, comfort, your children, whatever it is, all placed in that cup. Now imagine everyone in church, at Cornerstone Church, all their sins placed in that cup. Now everyone in Liverpool, all of the sins of the people in Liverpool, all of the sins of the people in the, the whole of the UK and the whole of the world, past, present and future, all in that cup. Imagine all that evil, all that pain in one place. Now imagine a God who is indifferent to that. We'd have to put him in the cup, wouldn't we? He would become evil if he turned a blind eye and just tried to sweat this under the carpet. God is not indifferent. He is absolutely, violently, wrathfully opposed to it. So that's what we see, something of the present wrath of God. Let's have a look then at the future wrath of God. And we need to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. Turn there with me, please. I encourage you. So let me read these few verses to you. So this is what's coming in the future. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. In the presence of the holy angels... And in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. That's horrible. It's horrific. Is that where my dad is now? Is that where people we love are now? Notice as well in whose presence this is happening. Did you notice that in verse 10? In the presence of the Lamb. God is wrathful against sin. We often think of the God of the Old Testament, don't we? Is this angry God and then Jesus appears on the scene and it's all fluffy and it's all nice. But no, Jesus is an angry God towards sin. Towards sin. He is the rider on a horse with a sword strapped to his side. The one who enters the temple and and overturns those those tables. 
The day of wrath that is spoken of in Scripture is this day, the day of judgment, and it's Jesus that is coming to judge humanity. He is coming. That day is coming. An infinite God is demanding an infinite payment for sin, for the cost of sin that we have committed. Think of the murderer who kills. We demand his life from him, don't we, in prison, and and rightly so. God is infinitely more just, and he demands our life from us for the payment of committing the worst crime in all of humanity, the blasphemy of God. The blasphemy of God. I was thinking this week as I was preparing, you know, even in our tension, there's a danger that we might be veering on committing a sin. Think about it. Why are we tense? Because we, we think we know better, don't we? God just seems a little bit over the top, doesn't he? A little bit too angry. You know, if, if I was God, I wouldn't quite do it that way. And so I feel tense because God shouldn't be doing things how he's doing things. And in a sense, I want to take God's place. I want to say, God, I know how to run this universe a bit better than you. I think it should be run this way. And so even in our tense hearts, it's, it's a danger of going into sin, isn't it? Of pride. That's why we struggle with it. God is a good God. He's a just God. He's a fair God. I wonder how many of you woke up this morning and got frustrated with gravity. What what, what are you talking about gravity now? (laughs) Think about it. Gravity judges us. It says there's a law. You know, if you you step over that cliff, you're going to fall over the edge of that cliff and you're going to hurt yourself. You'll probably disintegrate and you'll probably die. That's the law, isn't it? But we don't complain. We accept, don't we? We think that's right, that's good. We, we keep away from the cliff edge. Well, God says to us, if you step off the cliff towards sin, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death, and death is an eternal torment of suffering and wrath. That's a truth. As uncomfortable as it is. So friends, please, Please let this waken you. There is a real judgment to come. If you're listening to this and you don't know God, please let this stir you. Please let this waken you. That's what it's designed to do. That's why I think God has placed this there to warn us. He wants to warn us. He loves us. He cares about us. He's he's for us and he's warning us. Romans 2 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Please don't harden your heart like it says there. What can you do? Keep listening. There's some answers as we get towards mercy at the end. What about you? Are you a believer this morning? You're to fight sin. Look at the danger of sin. Are you trapped in sin right now? Look where it leads. Look at the danger that you're in. Flee from this sin, please. Please flee from it. Speak to somebody. But we're to fight sin, aren't we? And as I think of this, I don't know about you, but it gives me a sense of of urgency. Think about Liverpool Hospital this week. It's full of people that are potentially gasping their last breaths. Doesn't that give us an urgency? I know it's hard at the moment, isn't it, to be able to to get out and to reach people, but let's maybe prepare ourselves, be praying, be seeking God, and be sharing this message that people need Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I fear for you, I really do. 
The wrath of God is currently moving towards you. It's a bit like the, the Titanic where everyone thinks they're okay and then suddenly they hit the iceberg. Jonathan Edwards, a, a pastor in the States in the 1800s, says this, Therefore let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Like the blind man heading for the edge of that cliff, I'm not trying to manipulate you with the anger of God. I'm trying to warn you. And that's what God is loving doing. Please step back from the cliff edge. So friends, as we think about that and let our hearts meditate on the wrath of God, let's then look at the other side of this tension. What is mercy? God's mercy. Well, the dictionary definition of mercy is this. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who it's within one's power to punish or harm. And as you listen to that, I don't know about you, but I, I think of Jesus. Compassion and forgiveness, that's words that I would attach with Jesus. So in light of what I've just been saying, how then can God be a God of mercy? He can't brush this under the carpet. He can't brush sin away and just pretend that it's not there. So how do we square verses that say God is slow to anger, abounding in love? Well, again, I think through Scripture we see this in, in the past through the Old Testament, in the present and into the future. So Jonah in the Old Testament, we looked at that in the summer, didn't we? Remember Jonah sulking, angry at God. What does he say? I'm angry at you because I know that you are compassionate that you are slow to anger, that you were going to relent from disaster. How can this be? He's a wrathful God, but he's relenting from disaster in the book of Jonah. Which is it, God? Well, think about this verse, Hosea chapter 11, verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. What is your, is your mind a little bit exploding now? Because I think, hang on a minute, I've just spent ages talking about God's wrath. And now he's saying, I'm not going to come in wrath. Tension? Feeling it? Think about Jesus as well in the garden when, when they come to take him away. He tells Peter, don't cut off his ear. No, we don't use the sword. But later on, I've already said that he comes with the sword. What is going on? In fact, all through the Old Testament, God promises, doesn't he, to bless his people if they walk in his ways. Yet if they don't walk in his ways, he'll punish. But so often he restores them. So often he extends mercy towards them. And the Old Testament is just ripe with tension. How is God doing this? How is God going to fulfill his Promises. Think of the first half of the book of Isaiah that we quoted Isaiah earlier, but the majority of the first half of that book is judgment. Yes, judgment on pagan nations, but judgment on God's own people. It looks doomed, and then suddenly the second half of Isaiah, it's all about how he's going to save and rescue and be merciful and, and not extend his wrath to his people. It sounds a bit like God's got some sort of mental health issues, doesn't it? He's, he's one minute is this thing and the next minute is this thing. And we think that God will somehow just extend mercy because he just loves everybody and that's what he does. No, this is not a cheap mercy that we're talking about here. This is a mercy that drips with blood and sacrifice. 
God is not impotent. God's mercy runs parallel to his wrath. Like train tracks, these two truths run throughout scripture. This is both and, remember, not either or. He's not either merciful or wrathful. He's both and. Both and. But our brains are wired the other way, aren't they? So we can't quite compute this. It, it causes us tension, as we've seen with last week's sermon, the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. But it's, it's both and. So how is that possible? How is that possible? Well, I'm really glad you asked because that is the key point of the sermon this morning. And it's a beautiful point. The present. God is extending his mercy to us right now. How is he doing it? How do these tensions get resolved? The cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus dying on the cross. <laughs> it's God's wrath meted out to Jesus. Jesus receives that whole cup I said was full of those sins that we've committed. The wrath that we deserve is poured on Jesus Christ upon that cross. What happens then is Jesus pours out his mercy to us that have turned to him by faith. We receive his blessing, his forgiveness, his compassion. How do those two things get resolved? It gets resolved at the cross. It's the only way it can resolve. All other world systems can't resolve that tension, but Jesus resolves it at the cross. The answer, Sunday school answer, but the true answer is Jesus. How is the tension resolved? Jesus on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, for our sake, notice that word as well, for our sake, not for his, it wasn't as though Jesus needed to do this. Don't get me wrong, Jesus could have just wiped us out. He could have just got rid of us. He didn't need us. Father, Son, and Spirit were completely satisfied within themselves. But for our sake, because he wanted to extend love and mercy towards us, this is what he did. For our sake, he made him. Him is Jesus. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin. Jesus became sin. He didn't know sin, it says. He was innocent. He was perfect. He was the God-man. Christ was made the object of that wrath. Every single sin that Christians have committed is given to Jesus, put upon him. He is the object of God's divine, righteous judgment upon sin. It goes on in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that in him, in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, in him, we become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God. We become perfect. We become right before God, holy and pure and blameless, without wrath coming towards us. God sees us perfectly because of what Jesus has done. What news is this this morning? So when we turn in faith, we are declared innocent. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that is held against us if you put your faith in, in Christ. Do you hear that this morning? Nothing. Not even the sin that you've committed this morning or, or last week if you put your faith in Jesus. 
Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. A fancy word to make me look good and say that Jesus turns away the wrath of God. It's like, it's like there's a flood of, of wrath coming and Jesus is the dam that just absorbs that wrath. He takes it all on himself in our place. Behold the Lamb of God, says John the Baptist. Behold him, look at him. He's, he's come to take away the sins of the world. How is this tension revealed? Jesus. Let's turn now to the book of Luke, Luke's gospel. And just let's gaze upon what Jesus did on that cross just for a moment or two if we can. Luke 23, verses 44 to 49. It says this, It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That darkness is a picture of God's judgment. The whole world went dark while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That curtain was separating us from God. It was a symbol that we couldn't enter God's presence because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because God would just destroy us because of the sin present. Remember, he's opposed to sin. While Jesus dying on the cross, the curtain is torn because now by faith we can enter God's presence. We can be called friends and brothers and sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. It took the sacrifice of God's only son to pay the infinite price, to satisfy the wrath of God so that we might receive the mercy and love of God. It's answered, isn't it? And so in the present, in this world as well, we receive God's mercy. We see that all around us as well. While we see the brokenness of this pandemic, We see good, God's mercy extended into the world in love, kindness, family, food, beer, whatever it is, these things that God extends as well. So let's have a look at the future. Let's have a look at the future. And if you um, can turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me, and we're going to read the first few verses of this chapter. So stay with me, brothers and sisters, because this is good news as well. We've received that that mercy in the present through the cross and by faith, God's spirit enables us to receive that mercy. Well, look now at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. It says this, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's Satan among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, that's what we were. If you, if you turn to Jesus now, that's not what you are, but that's what you were. But God, but God, verse 4, but God, look what God has done. Being rich in what? Rich in mercy. Mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's our future and present reality all wrapped up in one. We are in Christ so that in the coming ages, in the age to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what we're going to be marvelling at in eternity. Look at what God has done when we're all there together, when we are able to sing, when we are able to hug and enjoy one another. We will be praising Jesus for this glorious grace and mercy. It sums it up well, doesn't it, that passage. We were objects of wrath. Some of you still might be. Please turn to him today. But God's mercy has come to us in Jesus. It wasn't because we're more lovely than the person next door. No, it was purely because of God's grace. And so we see the end of time, the book of Revelation as well. We have that future glory. Jesus will wipe every tear from your face. Isn't that incredible to think of that? The closeness of God, the glory that is to come. So as I close this morning, Christians, brothers, sisters, do you dread the wrath of God? Are you a Christian this morning that dreads the wrath of God? That's not a bad thing, it's terrifying, isn't it? But you dreading it because you fear he is angry with you. Do you sometimes feel as if bad things happen in your life or a result of his anger towards you? God has no anger towards you in Christ. None. His wrath has been satisfied by Jesus. He's not going to punish again. It has been completed. Jesus said it's finished. God is not angry at you. God is not mad at you. Believe that this morning. Does God allow bad things in your life? Yes, but only ever because he loves you and is shaping you and helping you. Wow, absorb that this morning. God is not disappointed in you. He loves you and his everlasting goodness is pointed towards you both today and forevermore. Wow. Well, maybe you're not a Christian this morning. And do you feel that God is this kind of angry, vindictive God? Well, I pray that you've seen this morning that nothing further could be from the truth. He's not vindictive. Yes, he's angry at sin. But he's a righteous father, angry at someone hurting his child. God has love that he wants to give. All you need to do is call out to him this morning. Acknowledge what Jesus has done and call on his name. I pray you do that this morning. What love is this? What love is this that we have from God? God is angry at sin, but right now completely merciful. Only the cross answers that tension. Let's be urgent in sharing this good news this week. How are we preparing ourselves? We might be shut away for a time, but how many are going to be shut away for eternity? Let this season be a season of preparation and proclamation. Live in that tension of the wrath that's being revealed, but the merciful Jesus who has provided a way. Let's pray. So Father, I want to thank you. I feel so inadequate to declare these truths, Lord, to, to get across your wrath and your mercy. So Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you apply these truths to our hearts? Help us to see them. 
Lord, if there's people that don't know you, please open their eyes today in the hearing of this voice. Please would you waken their souls. Nothing would be more glorious today than hearing of a soul turning to you, Jesus. So please would you save people. Please help us as Christians to, to live with this tension as well. Let it give us that sense of urgency. Let it spur us on, Lord. Let it stir in our hearts. Help us to remember your mercy as well, that you're not angry or disappointed at us as Christians. You only have love and goodness pointed towards us because of you, Jesus, because of what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in my life, in our lives. We love you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We need you. Keep pouring yourself out upon us, Lord. In Jesus' mighty, powerful name we pray. Amen. Oh,